episode number 17. I'm your host, Mr. Mercy. I'm your man, Cool Breeze. And this is Sin Radio Cast. In the building, Strength in Numbers Radio. What's going on, man? Chilling, man. I'm excited. Um, we definitely, we're on a roll. We, we, everything's moving in the direction that it's supposed to be moving in. And we have a guest today. I'm excited about this. This is this is, is going to be our, what, second interview? Yes, second. Second interview on our 17th episode of Sin Radio Cast. And um, we're going to get into it. So I'm excited, man. This is this is going to be a great episode. Great episode. Now, absolutely, man. I, I definitely uh, concur. Um, yeah, man. Um, you know, just uh, just want to just before we even get into it, man, you know how we do, man. Yep. Uh, we got to give our shout outs to our peoples out there, all the listeners. Um, matter of fact, we, you know, we've been doing a lot of YouTube lately. So, you know, a lot of people on YouTube would tell you, listen, hit the like button, uh, hit the subscribe button. Mm, and also yes. hit that notification bell. Uh, I know we haven't been saying that in other shows, but I'm like, you know, we they keep missing that part. So uh, that's very important. Um, just keeps the analytics up and, you know. Um, also, uh, gotta put the email out there, uh, show topics, ideas, anything. You wanna cuss us out, say we suck. Um, <laughs> hit us up at our email, sinradiowave at gmail.com. Uh, we also on Instagram yes. at Sin Radio Cast, Facebook, and uh, we're also on Twitter. So um, hit us up there. We follow back and definitely got to shout out our affiliates over at tttradio.net. Mm. Go over there, turntable tendencies, DJing at its finest, man. If you met, you missed that, uh, that, uh, that era where DJs were uh, the cornerstone of this thing, uh, yep. you could definitely go over there and check them out, man. Definitely. Okay, definitely want to do that. Um, yeah. shout, definitely shout out to uh, DJ Scan and uh, YZ over there at Turntable Tendencies. And um, and definitely uh, a rest in peace shout out to Black Rob and Shock G. Rest in power, man. Rest, rest in, in power. power. Man, that, that was crazy. Just real quick with uh, this, this month of April has been uh, one of those... Um, one of those months, man, you just, you'll never, you never uh, have seen it in a thousand years where you lose so many influential uh, figures in, in the hip hop, you know, genre. Uh, right. Just back to back to back like that. I, I don't ever recall um, a month quite like this one. Yeah, not, not just even a month. I would say within a year, we've lost a lot of artists. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, I hope this is not a, an ongoing trend and, um, but, you know, they have transitioned on. So hopefully, and they're in a better place and their, their spirits are, you know, in a better realm, you know, so I just want to make sure that um, we just give praise and respect and, and their music will live on. You know? Absolutely, man. Shout outs to the family of those brothers, man. Salute, man. Salute. Um, so let, let's get into it, man. Episode number 17. Yes. Uh, the show's title today, we're going to be uh, titling after this brother's book. Uh, we're going to be calling this show Homeboy in the Pyramids. Yes. Homeboy in the Pyramids. And I know the listeners are like, what the hell are y'all talking about? <laughs> Homeboy in the Pyramids. Well, we're going to get into that uh, throughout this show. Um, 
And without any further ado, we're going to introduce our guest today. Cool B, it's on you, man. Okay, we're going to introduce our guest, Mr. Clark Ilmatical. Hey. Welcome, brother. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, Thank you for having me. No problem, man. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't sound as good as you two. You guys have voices for radio. So. <laughs> Nah, you good, man. You good, man. So, so what's going on, good brother? Um, this, uh, oh, hey, man. Well, you know, like, uh, just you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, we have some significant people in hip hop from passing. So right now, man, it's just thanks to being alive, to, you know, surviving yeah. the pandemic, and just reflecting on last year. This time, you know, people were dying around us, so right. we're all very fortunate to be at a point where I think a lot of us have been able. To get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, keep, you know, just maintain your health and just move past this. So a lot of us were just fortunate. So I'm fortunate, man. I'm just glad to be here. Definitely. Mm, so for all the people for the first time being introduced to uh, Mr. Clark Ilmatical, could you just give us just a, just a quick background on yourself? Um, you know, what do you do? Because uh, people are like, who's this guy? What, what's yeah, this guy? I'm a writer right. and director. I think uh, people... Uh, may be familiar with some of my writing. I've been doing a lot of work within uh, martial arts entertainment over the last several years. Uh, I've had several significant articles that have gone viral. Um, mm. This summer, I'm releasing my documentary uh, based on those articles. One article I had that was went viral a few years ago was called uh, 12 Forgotten Fury, 12 Martial Artists You Didn't Haven't Heard Of. This was about mm. four or five years yeah. ago. And this went viral. This is a viral article and several other, like, you know, I published this on the uh, Lash Dragon website and it was picked up in a, a lot of websites started covering it. And in the wake of my work, because um, I initially had a five-part article in the Amsterdam News. Oh, wow. Wow. And, yeah, wow. five-part article. And in, in the wake of that, there have been several uh, documentaries about Black martial artists and so forth. So it was definitely, it had a profound effect. And um, finally, I'm releasing my documentary this year. But uh, I've been, like I said, I've been doing a lot of work in martial arts entertainment. Um, and people may have seen my other other essays and writing online as well. Wow. Okay. I'm impressed, man. That's major. That, that's yeah. major. The Amsterdam is a Pretty serious. Yeah, oh, it's, it's serious within the African American or black black news. But uh, you know, when I was trying to publish this work, no one wanted. It. Some people were very sensitive about how it was published. And the sports editor um, for the Amsterdam News, Howie Long, I believe, he knew exactly what I was trying to do because this is a very sensitive topic because you know it involves you know the dynamics between uh, you know Asian and of course and quote unquote black Americans. So it's not a finger pointing kind of a contest, but it was, you know, to just identify elements of racism that were there. Because the bottom line is that uh, black men in most quote unquote black men, the African men that are here in the United States, they were dominating uh, sports competition for most of the 60s and 70s. Right. And what I come, a long story short, what I come to find out that Bruce Lee wasn't a fighter. And so, um, oh. right, and this is the reason why you don't hear about them. Mm. Wow, Bruce Lee so, wasn't fighting. Okay, no. wait, 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 hold, hold on. on. You know, you offended a lot of people by saying that. <laughs> no, listen, <laughs> I like. Look, I want to share something with you. you. Know, I I kind of came full circle with this 
um, I don't want it to take, because this could be a whole show in itself. Right. But um, when I first started this, this project, I had interviewed this, this real crazy guy. You've probably seen this movie called Bloodsport. Yes. And it, it was about this guy named Frank Dukes. Now, Frank Dukes is full of dog shit, but that's separately, he tried to attach his name to a lot of people, but he was the first person that really put me on to a lot of the black martial artists. Right. And so I called this one brother up. His name was Ronald Duncan. Uh, he's acknowledged as the first practitioner of ninjutsu in the United States. He's mm. called the father of American ninjutsu. And uh, he didn't want to tell me at first. He just gave me a little snippet of what happened. And I started, you know, for several months when I was doing this article for the Amsterdam News, working on the article, I come to find out that, you know, there were tournaments in the 60s, except every weekend, in California, Chicago, yeah. New York City, almost every other weekend. And Bruce Lee didn't fight at all. He'd go to the tournaments and do push-ups like a motherfucker. <laughs> or, do, or do demonstrations, but he wouldn't fight. And I, what I, yeah. No, go ahead, finish your statement. I, I want to say something after that. So yeah. basically what I just come to find out was there was a difference between him and our actual practitioner and people, and I couldn't figure, and even over the years, I put a lot of clips online and people Google like Forgotten Fury, they know who I am. And so- yeah. I couldn't figure out why the hell all these guys talking about how great he was. And basically when he died, they realized that they could attach their names, his name to their resume and make right. more money. The brand, pretty right. much. Exactly. He's, he's gone. It doesn't hurt them. Oh yeah, he, he taught me everything I know. And then, you know, so it, um, it, it was an interesting experience. And, and a lot of that work has just coincided with my travels and so forth. And, um, yeah, so people who out there probably know me, they know me through that work because that I've had more people on, on YouTube, like I'll publish some of my uh, videos in relation to travel and they already had seen my videos about martial arts. Okay. I have a question, um, a more of a statement. So I, um, it was a while ago where I was on YouTube and I saw something, it was some clips of like a, some black martial artists. It, it may have even been uh, one of your videos where they were talking about Bruce Lee and him coming to the tournament and things like that. And that's, that's Vic Moore. Okay. That, that started with me. Okay. I was, yeah, I was the first person to go down there and meet with him. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, this was 2009. And okay. uh, no one had, now somebody actually is doing a Vic Moore documentary now. Right. And so the thing was, you, everybody's seen a clip. There's a clip where Bruce Lee is like flashing a punch at some brother's face. Right. Yeah. So that, that brother was the international, the, the first national, not just black, but the first national champion of the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. So going back to that statement you just said, because Bruce Lee came to these tournaments and <laughs> I guess they, he wasn't fighting, right? They, so they were all getting. You know they were getting fucked up. They that was M, that was MMA back then, right? Okay. And see, I'm gonna point something else out, and I wanna because like I said, this could be an entire show. Mm -hmm. right? It was MMA back then. There was like wrestling versus like uh, you know wrestling versus boxing. Boxing, right? All that shit was going on back then. But it didn't really have a it didn't really have a, a name for it. Per it se. wasn't called MMA, right? right. And it was really taboo to do like 
that kind of full context stuff. But these like Chuck Norris, he paid his dues, man. Chuck Norris, yeah. Long and short, man. Chuck Norris kind of like I had a guy tell me the guy's name was Aaron Banks. Anybody who's in in the martial arts world, they know about him. He passed away, but he was a promoter. Chuck Norris turned his back on the martial arts community because he was when when he did that movie with Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. he was the national champion. Yeah. He was a national champion. And so he went and does it, he went to this movie with Bruce Lee, he gets fucked up in the movie. And then, you know, next thing I next thing you know, or his 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 movie, his his Hollywood career took off after that, but he left the martial arts world behind. Yeah, a lot of people tend to forget that um Chuck Norris was a bad dude, man. He was yeah, really yeah. about he's really about his martial artists, his yeah, and, skills. And in in the documentary, I'll put it, I put this in there, but his son just went off script. A few years ago, and just basically saying, you know, my father would kill Bruce Lee in a fight. Bruce Lee was only 140 pounds, man. Mm, you know? Wow. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't you know, a fighter. You're breaking a lot of people's hearts right now. No, no. But see, <laughs> you, you you know, up a lot. I want to say something. You know, I, I, for a while, I was like, oh, you know, it's like Bruce Lee and shit. But, you know, the bottom line was he was a martial artist. He yes. doesn't have to be like, you know, he, he look, okay. This, you know, you got the guys in MMA and like boxing. Those that's like the pinnacle, or like you know, Olympic wrestling. That's like the pinnacle of martial arts. But like you have these other people walking around the streets who are like, you know, ninth degree, tenth degree black belts and specializing kung fu. They'll fuck you up. Right. And I think and, you know Bruce Lee was in that. But there's a difference between a professional fighter and somebody who's not right. A it's like almost get- like a person that's trained <clears throat> that goes to train for boxing. Versus a person that actually boxes. Yeah, it's a different. Yeah. Now, don't get it twisted. The guy who trained for boxing, the average person who walks up in the street, you know, he, you know, I, I have background in martial arts. I've, I've knocked people out. You know, I broke someone's eye socket before, but I'm not, I'm not gonna fight Canelo Alvarez. Right. It's a, it's a right. It's a di- yeah. Right. I have, I have a question. So, why do you think, like? within the uh, black community or just even within, within the martial arts community that people only know of, let's say like Jim Kelly, because Jim mm-hmm. Kelly was a big name. That's another thing. And that's, that's why the article, when it, when it was released, it was so powerful because basically a lot of people didn't know that these guys even existed. The guy who's doing the Vic Moore documentary, when he saw it, he was, I think he was in class and he told somebody, he was like, he, he never knew that these people existed. Mm. I had a, I, I was interviewing a, a martial artist like maybe a year and a half ago. And it was Hassan Khalid. He's like an old school Brooklyn dude. And he said something, he said, a lot of parents, when they bring their children to the dojos, they'll say, you know, we didn't know that, you know, quote unquote, black martial artists could be grandmasters. Oh, wow. So it's a mental, this is all about a mental... A, a, a mental trick bag. It's not. It's not an attack because there was racism in martial arts. But at the same time, <clears throat> all these brothers I spoke to, they said they had excellent relationships with Chinese people, mm. and a, and a lot of people said Bruce Lee was cool as fuck. He would come to their dojos and smoke weed with them. And he was oh, a wow. cool guy. And I realized something very powerful that he did. You have to understand, Bruce Lee. I, I was in Hong Kong. And I was interviewing a guy called Bay Logan for uh, Time Out Magazine there. And Bay Logan said something very powerful. He said, Bruce Lee is the most recognized actor in the world. Not, not, not martial arts actor. Mm. 
most recognized actor. And that was his goal. He didn't want to, he didn't want to do full contact. He didn't want to, he wanted to make movies. And that's not easy. Oh no, not at all. And so he did something amazing. And that's what he wanted to do. And he, and he has a he has a movie history before martial arts, but in terms of his martial arts films, he only has like four or five. And you know, he's 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 recognized all around the earth. So he his accomplishments are still valuable and important. And he's still a credible, you know, um, ambassador of martial arts. But he's not, I mean, come on, man. He's not walking into a room like you've seen when he's like beating up 50 people. I mean, that's, that's insane. Embellishing <laughs> a little bit. Right. Um, and, and, and you know what's crazy? It reminds me of, when I hear things like this, uh, Clark, it reminds me of like uh, so many things in, throughout our history that have been pretty much whitewashed or pretty much put to the back for instance i'll give you an example in in um there's a book called black ice about the black canadian players that pretty much started you know the nhl uh, yeah. nhl nhl right and you know canada is known for the best players in the world and you know you you know you do your research and you come to find out that this originally was our sport and we thrived in that sport and it's just casually pushed to the back and I had to uh, uh, tell this to my stepson that, you know, do you realize the sport of hockey is something that our yeah. people created? Rock and roll yeah. was something we created. Yeah. Okay, it's, that was it's, a slang word. Okay, I, I didn't learn this in college. Right, I went to right. music school. Right. So when I hear you, you just bring up this from uh, a martial arts perspective, it, 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 just, it just makes me want to now read your articles and do my own due diligence, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's, it's very similar to what the brother Dane Calloway is doing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dane Calloway, but uh, Dane Calloway is somebody you definitely want to check out. Yeah. Uh, expert researcher, field researcher. And this brother's explaining that um, the research he's done has proven that I'll say over 80% of so-called African-Americans are not even African. They're actually they were here. They were here. Yeah. Aboriginal Absolutely. Um, people, so... I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the, the, the natives. Real, like, yeah. To me, look, listening to you mm -hmm. give this information, you're almost like the Dane Calloway of martial arts. Oh, you okay, know what cool. I'm saying? To, nice. to a degree. Mm -hmm. Now, let me, Um, I just wanted to um ask you, like, how, how, I, I know you and Cool B have a relationship, um, you know, from the past, so. Yeah, well, me and Cool B, we went, we, we went to high school together and, yeah. um, I think I did need martial arts. I think he, I think he saw me get beat up before. <laughs> I got. I remember I had a fight. I was like, we were like in ninth grade, man. And I fought this kid. I got off the bus and I got my ass kicked. I think he remembers that. But, mm. my, but any of it, like even <laughs> there's something important. I don't know if Cool B remembers, but we had a teacher named Mr. Ulf. That name sounds very familiar. He was a social studies teacher. And okay. I mentioned him in the book because he used to provide like, uh, when he was reviewing history in terms of Asian history, he would introduce certain movies. <clears throat> and he was the first person to really turn me on to things like uh, a movie called Empire of the Sun and yeah. a movie called The Last Emperor. Yeah, These things really were the initial sparks for me for Asian culture. But okay. in terms of, yeah, me and me and Cool B, yeah, we went to the same high school, definitely. Right. And it's funny, because um, I mentioned um, a 
little while ago that um, how we both ran into each other yes, in, yes. in Manhattan. Right. We were, we were at 34th Street um, in Manhattan and mm -hmm. uh, Penn Station. So right. we were actually walking past each other. It was kind of crowded. And I kind of looked up and you looked up and we both looked at each other. We kept walking. I said, wait a second, is that, is that my man Clark? So right. we both turned back around and we looked at each other, started laughing, shook hands, like, yo, we had a brief conversation, like, yo, we have to keep in contact, yada, right, yada. Right. And then, and we've been keeping in contact on and off from that point, I believe. And, and Indeed. And I think that was when you either told me you went to England or you were coming back. It was around that right, time it was, you had first. Yeah. The and first do, time. And I do remember that. I do remember that you had mentioned something, even when we bumped into each other that time, you mentioned that you were going to England. Something about England came yeah. Cause it, it, I think it, I, I was either getting ready to go go to England, or I must have gotten back from England. But it, but, but I remember. So that had to be about two thousand and two, two thousand and three, yeah. when okay. I when I saw you. So that was like the first time I went to England was January, right. um, two thousand and three. Nice. Yes. Oh, right. cool, cool. So let me ask you, Clark. Like earlier in your years, you know, coming up, what were some of your early ambitions? You know, my early ambition was to sell watchtowers in the wakes. Um, <laughs> I say that jokingly, man, but like, you know, my, I, and I talk about this in a book, but, you know, I, my parents were and are still Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, basically when you grow up with this religion in front of you, they, that's what they want you to do with your life. And it's unfortunate that, you know, the, the hypocrisy is they didn't grow up with that religion, mm. um, you know, and they kind of put this religion before everything else. So, you know, my ambitions were always kind of curtailed. You know, they were always put in the back burner because I had to put that religion first and foremost. And <clears throat> I waited over 30 years to, to drop that religion. And, mm. you know, I still have a relationship with my parents, but... You know, had I had I, I think I would I should have made a, a better decision when I was a little bit younger, and it possibly could have helped me a lot better. But I was very fortunate, even though I was associated with the with the one of the women at the at our church. She was the one who kind of introduced me to a, an IT school. So straight out of straight straight out of, straight out of high school, man, my ambition honestly was to, this is gonna sound crazy, man. I was gonna get into the IT field and I was gonna go to California so I could marry Adina Howard. That was my- <laughs> that, The, the that singer, was, the singer Adina Howard? That was my ambition, man. I just wanted to get a job from IT and I was gonna rent a car and I drew a map and I wanted to go across the, the United States just so I could meet her, man. You had vision, that's good. <laughs> Very important to have vision, man. No doubt, so, no doubt. So, Clark, man, I noticed your last name is Illmatical, and I, I just couldn't help but to ask you, uh, yeah. does that have anything to do with Nas's first album, or? No, actually, that word actually came from uh, tragedy. Oh. And so, wow. right, tragedy that's tragedy. Right, tragedy. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I made that spirit, there was a name change I, I actually made in 2012 and it was a spiritual decision. Um, and this was the wake of me coming back from Brazil mm. and I stayed with my cousin, he was a five percenter. He is a very 
um, um, he still is a prophet center and a very active member in the prophet percent nation, nations of gods and earth. <clears throat> but he for those listeners out there, just just real quick, the five percent nation of gods and earth was started by a gentleman by the name of Father Allah, um, who used to be with the nation of Islam, used to um, be under uh, Malcolm X, um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So I just want to put that out there for all the listeners who might not know in other, another country. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of members of the Wu Tang, um, Brand Nubian, various of the earlier hip hop um, acts were many of them were five percenters. So just want to just give the listeners out there just a little more context. Indeed, and um, you know my cousin was very instrumental in helping me mentally break free from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so it was around wow. that time that I chose that name uh, in reference to its uh, symbolism and meaning. And the AL, the AL suffix is a state of being. So I took that word because I'm from Queens, um, second generation on both sides of my family. And that was why that was a, it was like a spiritual decision. When I heard that name in reference, I, I, I decided that I was good because I had been planning on changing my name prior to that. Mm. <clears throat> and it was, uh, it was odd. I had, I don't want to segue too much, but, um, there was some background where I had run into another, uh, a woman from the, the, the uh, earth. And she gave me some history on like, you know, nations of gods and earth as well. So it wasn't something I just did randomly. It was a spiritual change and it was something I did in 2012. Cool, man. Mm. Man, that's dope. Cause I, I, I swore uh, <laughs> you, you got this name from Il Matt. You couldn't tell me you didn't get, okay. But I like well, the way you uh, just, this gave us down. a breakdown. No, 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 no doubt. And tragedy actually, yeah, tragedy got that from a guy called Illmatic Ice. And Illmatic Ice got that from St. Albans, Queens, because there was a group called Rapmatic. Yeah. Before, before, like, you know, the early 80s. So that, that, that name has kind of been in the atmosphere in terms of like the, the you know, in terms of, uh, I guess you want to say the black vernacular within, within Queens. Wow, mm. and and that probably influenced Nas. That could have even influenced yeah. Nas. Yeah. No, definitely influenced Nas because that um all of that's well my cousin actually put you know if you listen to tragedies uh songs on uh Molly Mall's album, you can hear him where he's giving the shout outs and so forth. Nas got all that stuff and he put that on the Illmatic, but tragedy was the first one to really um Nas was heavily influenced by tragedy. By tragedy, yes. Tra right. tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> the same same projects. Uh, tragedy was out there before Nas, but Nas yeah. obviously became the much bigger name, household yeah. name. Now Absolutely. you said a lady at your church was the one who pretty much told you um, uh, to to start to travel. So my question is, yeah. what was the first place you traveled to abroad, and why did you choose that place? Okay, well, the first place I traveled abroad was Brazil. Mm. And that was sparked, honestly, by this movie called The City of God. Um, yes, one of my favorites. I saw that movie in 2003. And I remember back then, there was like this real cryptic ad for it on Hot 97. It was the RZA. And I was like, what is this guy talking about? And I, I dismissed it. And like one day, I think I, I didn't have anything to do. So I, ch I checked out on cable and I was just hypnotized. I had never, I had never been overwhelmed by like a film like that ever. Yeah. 
And that's weird you say the city of gods made you go to Brazil because I think I thought it would do the opposite. I thought it would make you not want to go there. <laughs> I go go to Brazil. No. When I was in uh when I first got in the IT field, one of the guys we went to school with, there was a guy, I don't want to say his full name. I'll uh, just say his name was Martin. I don't want to say his last name. So mm. me and my boy, we moved out to Atlanta and we were both working for Bell South. And we were working in this place called the Network Operations Center. Mm. And I remember Martin was still in New York, but he he was traveling to Brazil. And he was sending my homeboy pics of, like, the women he was dealing with. Mm. And, you know, that wasn't a big... I mean, I had, like, my little shorty at, like, Spellman. It's not... I, I, was, I wasn't about to travel for some pussy. Right. And um, it was like... It was like, all right, man. That's, that's not a big deal for me. Um, that's not a deal breaker. But... When over the years, when after I saw that movie, and I never, I, I, I don't know if I had heard Portuguese before, but I had just never been overwhelmed by like a piece of art like that. And I was just, I was like, man, I was hypnotized. I had to go there. So here's the thing being that you've lived in Brazil, um, do you speak Portuguese? And how long were you down in Brazil for? Yeah, I was there six months. And yeah. I speak like, I was I was speaking at a level where I was functional, and so what that means is uh, I'll, I'll just share like I'll give you some insight. There was a guy his blog is still online. It's called Eyes on Brazil for anybody mm. who's still interested in going. <clears throat> and he made a good point. He says, "Listen, the bad thing about the Brazilian visa is six months. Like you three months visa, and then you extend it for another three months." But he said, "By the time you're finished with six months, you're just getting a hold of the language." And then you got to leave. And there's ways around that, but it's just kind of like, you, that's when you make all your friends, you get, you're getting your feet wet, you get a little bit settled. And then by that time you have to leave. So when I say functional use of the language, and I talk about this in the book, you don't learn everything. You don't learn the entire language because that could take you, you know, like four or five years. You want to get to a point, there's something called like emergency or survival language. Right. And so what you want to do is you want to learn the basics, how to introduce yourself, how to count, how to ask basic questions, you know, who, what, when, where, why, yeah. um, how to count, how, how to, how to ask for help and, you know, maybe give somebody a phone number, tell people where you live. Yeah. That's going to be your starting point. Introduce yourself, say hello to people. Mm. That's the baseline. Tell time. After that, you can get into like, you know, every week add on like 20 more questions and things like that. But you want to just get the basics down first. Mm. Great, man. That's a great, that's a great yeah. uh, way to kind of break it down, man. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, what are some of the downsides to, you know, traveling abroad over a long period of time? Give us some of the, the downsides. Yeah, I think one of the biggest downsides is... Um, you know, being away from your, your people, in a sense, you know, you brought up, you know, the, the discussion about quote unquote African-Americans and the majority of them being indigenous. You know, the, the thing is a lot of us have a spiritual connection to this land that goes back, you know, thousands thousands of years. Yeah. And so the thing is, what I noticed about the African brothers when I was living in Asia, <clears throat> even if they were married, you know, in China, they usually went home 
every six or three months. Mm-hmm. Every, every six months, they went home to recalibrate, and then they would come back. Whereas I was out there for four and a half years, and I kind of feel like I was, you know, wasn't spiritually balanced that time. So I think that when you're out traveling by yourself for a long time and moving around, it's difficult to, I mean, I'm used to it now, but it can be difficult to make real friends, um, find a social circle, mm. um, and get you, you know, and find community. Those are the biggest obstacles for anybody who travels, regardless of color, finding community, friends, um, a spiritual base, and just finding like, you know, you may have a direction, but even just, just getting the right fit because not every country and city is going to be a right fit for you. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And the reason why I say that is because I'm actually looking to move abroad as well. And in within the next, I'll say four or five years. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, me and my fiance are looking at is like, okay, uh, there's so many choices here, but what is really going to be feel like home to us? So when we, uh, do our trip um, overseas? We're looking at Belize right now. Uh, we'll be mo- we'll be moving around to at least three to four different um, places and staying in those regions. And we're just going to let our intuition talk to us. And you know, I just feel a lot of things will will you, you know, there's something greater that tells you this this is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, me growing up in the Caribbean, moving to New York. But in, mm-hmm. in 2015, there was something inside of me that said, you have to leave. And mm-hmm. Atlanta was the place that, you know, I, I chose to go. Mm-hmm. And since then, I, you know, I've, I've uh, I struggled. I went through a lot of different things, you know, right. had to overcome a lot of things. But now I'm in a, a very great space. Nice. So, um, I, I just I just love hearing stories like this. Yeah, definitely, man. So, okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. no, I was going to say the same for me, being that I left um, New York in 2011 and came to LA, you know, it was a struggle, but things definitely, you know, worked out for the best. I, now, I wanted to add on, see, we're talking about travel, but in the book, I want to, I, I point out the most significant travel experience that I had initially was in the United States. And so, mm-hmm because there's a lot of brothers, brothers and sisters, but this book is aimed at brothers, you know, like, and, and I think the both of you had mentioned, like when you were abroad, like you had a network that you tapped into. So many of us have like relatives down South. So many of us got yeah. that uncle in, in, you know, Alaska or Hawaii. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with giving these people a ring and say, hey, look, you know, I want to, I want to come stay out there for six months. You don't have to pay my bills. Just help me get set up. Right. Things like that, being reasonable. And so using that network, because my brother had a house in Atlanta and that was what allowed me to go there and be there and function. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. And I'm glad you said that. Uh, networking. Um, mm-hmm. Me and Cool uh, learned this very early on in our travels. Uh, the first time we went to London, England, uh, we were able to stay um, without plan, without staying in a hotel, paying for hotels, Airbnbs. We actually had connections out there. Just like you had a brother there. We had our cousins, uh, you know, our family members, uncles, 
um, within these regions. And yep. it literally helped us so much with the budget. It helped us to have a local experience as yeah, opposed yeah. to the, yes. the yep. touristy experience. Yes, indeed. and it was great. Shout outs to um Ed um no um yeah my cousin yeah um he really held us down out there. Uh Peter, all yeah, those Peter. guys. Uh, I have a cousin by the name of Jasmine that I was introduced to for the first time. Um, we went to England in in two thousand three, and it was crazy. I remember the first time I met her. Her her mother is pretty much my grandfather's little sister. I've mm. never met her before. She actually just turned ninety. I think she just turned 92. And oh, wow. Blessing. And uh, shout out to Aunt Elsie. And I met them for the first time. And it was so crazy to say that I had never met them before. We got so tight, so yeah. tight, that she actually uh, gave me, I remember her giving me this envelope. And I never I never bothered to open the envelope till I got back to New York. And she put like 100 pounds Nice. Which was almost two hundred dollars at the time. Yeah, that's that's old. Yeah. Yeah. And took me around, and and it was like she knew me for a whole life. So that's I, I definitely see the importance of connecting with somebody that's already on the ground, just like right. Belize. Uh, cool B's brothers in Belize. Oh, yeah. nice. So that's yeah. you're good to go, man. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we already have a foundation yes. on the ground, boots on the ground that can say, look. This area is good for this, but this right. area is, is good for that. Right. You know, so yeah. that's definitely important. So I want to move forward now. Um, I want to really get into the book. Yes. Uh, the book really has me interested. It's it's titled Homeboy in the Pyramids, and this is the title of the show as well. And you said this is a travel guide for so-called black men. Now I want to ask you, yeah. why do you say so-called black? Um, uh -huh. I was, I'll, I'll get into it. And you mentioned Dane Calloway and his research with uh, African-Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, coming out of the Jehovah Witness cults, I'm very conscious of the words I use. And when, mm -hmm. I, was in, when I was in China, Chinese people just called me African. They just called me African. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they didn't call me black very rarely. Um, usually I find with Asian people, when they would call you black, they're getting influence from Caucasians. Yep. So usually, like you're in China, they're, they're just fake Warren. That's your African. And so I was doing research. Uh, I had a color theory course that I was studying online. We did a lot of self-study when I was in China. And this professor mentioned, and I mentioned this in the book, <coughs> he mentioned that universally within the world, um, those, those words, white and black, are not processed the same. And so basically, black in every language in this earth, on, on the planet, it has a negative connotation, whereas white yeah. has a spiritual connotation or it's, you know, for, for righteousness and goodness. So Or purity. Purity. And I, I don't want to subscribe to that. Um, you know, I, <clears throat> I understand, you know, I appreciate, quote unquote, American black culture. Um, but at the same time, I want to get away from that word. And we can call each other what we want. The right. most damaging thing is calling Europeans or Caucasians white. That's right. Mm. I, I, I'm going to interject real quick. because I un, As I understand mm. it through my research, the word black is just a status. And it, it's just a lower status. Yeah. And by calling somebody, and a lot of people don't understand that uh, people from Egypt are considered white. Mm -hmm. um, right, status, exactly. 
has nothing to do with race. Right. And we sit up here, we post, and we claim Black Lives Matter, and we, we keep claiming these things that don't belong to us. We allow people to, to name us what they want to name us. For one minute, we were Negro, uh, but it was a time we were Aborigine, we were indigenous. Then we became Afro-American. Then we became Black. Then we became African-American. And this, uh, to me, is, is very dangerous when somebody can change your name yeah. right in front of your face and you yeah. not challenge it and even yeah. give you your history and or their version of history and, yeah. and impose it upon you. And then mm -hmm. when you try to educate people on this, they're so indoctrinated Right, because as I learned through Dane Calloway recently, they used to have something called Freedman schools, but yeah. Freedman schools were not were not schools; they were religious institutions designed yeah. for indoctrination. Wow, Brain brainwashing. So the the very religious sector was actually directly responsible for us adopting the mindset that we actually still hold today. Sure, sure. So, yeah. as Dane Calloway explains. Racism had nothing to do with chains and shackles. There was no chains and shackles involved. And most of the slaves were actually children. Okay. That's deep. I didn't know that. Yep. And, and a lot of what we call slavery was nothing but sharecroppers who were uh, signing up these deals pretty much with Europeans to work land. And if they couldn't keep up with the payments or the crops didn't come in. Eventually they'll owe those people. And then what happened, they would do something called a land grab. And sure. that's how the yeah. indigenous um, people started to lose their land to foreign corporations, such as banks and the international uh, bankers who now pretty much control this company through, I mean, this company, which is called the United States federal government, which is incorporated in Delaware. So mm. a lot of people don't understand that corporations right. actually control you. The sure. police work for the city, aka sure. Corp, Corp, which yeah. is also a, a, a lower corporation owned by a municipality known as a county. Yeah. The county. Okay, then you have county, you have state, and then that state is actually a corporation too. And then you have a separate corporation called the federal government. And the yeah. federal government has a management company called the GSA. Mm. It is managed. So we are literally controlled by corporations, but you don't see nobody fighting, pumping their hands <laughs> like at the corporate. You know, Not at all. Not at all. Nobody Not at all. says nothing. No. So just wanted to, not to go on a rant, but I just wanted to go into that. Mm. Now, no, let me yeah, ask you a question. How long did it take for you to, 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 to put this book together? You know, um, when I got back from Asia, in the way that things went. Because I mentioned, I sent like a synopsis. Um, you know, I, I went out to Asia. There was some events that prompted that journey, but I went out there and I was there for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And during the, during the time that I wanted to, the time when I was out there, I went to Hong Kong and I was overwhelmed by Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And I just, and like, it really became my focus. Like, you know, I'm going to live here, I'm going to make it here. And I wound up getting there. Um, I wind up getting there, and then I'm there for six months. I get into this stupid argument that turns into a street fight. I break someone's eye socket, and then wow. I wind I wind up doing six months in prison. Wow! Wow! I get you deported. Locked up abroad. Well, see, and that's a, I learned a lot in that process. And I'll be honest with you, 
that was the most important part of my time in Asia. Mm. Wow. But so I get back, I'm gonna shift, but I'm gonna just ask you a question. So I get yeah. back and like, you know, my girlfriend at the time and one of my friends was like, bro, this shit is like a movie. You gotta write this. So I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. That's what that's what segued into that. Yeah, because wow. I was thinking about locked up abroad. Like when you said that, I'm yeah, like, you it's crazy. Locked up abroad. That like, was one of my. Oh favorite. yeah, I've, I've been contacted by several, several people and different like Vice magazine and so forth. All right. Nice Vice. Shout out to so, Vice. Man. Yeah, I like Vice. Definitely, oh, definitely Vice. A, a friend to Sin Radio. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. All right. All right. Love Vice, man. So, um, uh, so since you've traveled abroad and you've been out of the country for years at a time did you notice any changes when you came back to your home nation that's a very important point um i talk about this in the book um the return home and whenever you come back if you go leave the united states for a significant amount of time when you come back you're gonna see things differently. And I mentioned even, I just published an article on my blog about this, but I mentioned <clears throat> like, you know, everyone is still brilliant and amazing, but you see the world a lot differently. Right. And so nothing is diminished. Like New York City is, I'm, I'm still love New York City, but I've seen Hong Kong, I've seen Rio de Janeiro, I've seen Beijing. So it's like, this isn't, you know, this isn't all I know. This is still like one of the best cities in the world. Don't get it twisted. But you, you grow and I'll share something. A brother told me something very deep and I'm still in contact with him. He's in Bahia. Mm. He said, look, I was like, oh, I had a week left in uh, Brazil. I was gonna go back home and we talked. He said, listen, when you go back, people are gonna hate on you. Mm. And as soon as I got back, you know, funny style cousins and some people, some not the not the one I built with in the spot for semination, but some other people was acting funny, you know. So it you get you learn you, you see things a lot, you, you interpret everything that you know differently. So I have a question for you. Being that you lived in uh, what several places, mm -hmm. um and you said you speak a little bit of uh, Portuguese. Are there other languages that you learn to speak while living in these other places? Yeah, so like when I was in Brazil, I had to learn like functional Portuguese. Um, right. Before I even left to go to Beijing, I started started with Mandarin. Mm. Um, I learned Cantonese when I was in Hong Kong. Um, mm. When I was in Cambodia, I didn't learn, I learned basic. When I was in v Vietnam, was probably the only place I didn't learn any of the language because um, <coughs> it was my fault. The, the material I had, the language learning material I had was um, based on uh, a northern dialect. I was okay. in Ho Chi Minh City for like seven, eight months. Mm -hmm. And the, the books that I had were all based on the, uh, the dialect from Hanoi. Okay. I wound up going to Hanoi for two months, but basically I didn't learn any Vietnamese at all, but every other part of the journey, I would always learn basics, counting and so forth. Yeah. And in Taiwan, they speak, they speak Mandarin. So the little bit of, and even I, I remember when I was in Taiwan, they knew that I had been living in Beijing because they could hear it in my accent. 
Okay, yeah. that, that's that's crazy. That's good, they, yeah. they can sense the differences and stuff. Because people in Beijing, they got this, like, it's like a New York accent, but in Mandarin. And okay. it's very, very harsh. And, uh, um, okay. It's cool. very... I would never <laughs> thought that, but yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, let me ask you, so you've lived in Brazil, China, Taiwan, Cambodia, Vietnam, Hong Kong, and Tanzania. So that's a lot of places. Right. Let me just ask you, between, you know, the fellas, uh oh. Places you think the girls had the best for JJ? Look like Asia. Who was the freaks? Yeah, Asia. Asia. All the fellas out there. Asia. The women wow. in like Vietnam, like Asian women, they have tighter pussy. Really? I'm not, I'm not even holding nothing, but listen. Really? I had. Listen. Fellas! Fellas, I'm telling you, listen, you get the right Asian woman, get UFC, you will be tapping out. Wow. Wow. There you go, fellas. Best, listen, best pussy I've had was like, you know, this, this girlfriend, you know, uh, Bahamas. You know, she was up, but like the bit, like a lot of Asian women, their pussies are tighter. And that's that's why, like, sometimes you ever see like a big dude, his wife is like half his size. Yeah, I've seen that's that. Cause, that's because her pussy game is, I'm telling you, man, a lot of women got their pussy game on lock. God damn. So, well, hold up. I would have really? swore Brazil. I thought he was going to say Brazil, man. Brazil, <laughs> I was not expecting I'm going to be honest with you, man. Like, I don't even like Brazilian women. They're whack. They can't dress. Their hair's all fucked up. A lot of the Brazilian chicken, now they can fuck, but like, and like, they, oh, man. they, they try to bring it to you. They try, they got that, they got an asking, but like, like, nah, I'm not really into Brazilian women. Clark, are you serious? Yeah, man, you know what it is, man? Brazilian women, they cannot dress. And listen, you, you, you it's like their style is like lean, bro. And they don't know how to do their hair properly. This, I'm not, I'm not into them at all. You about to get wow. canceled. Man, they're going to cancel you, Clark. <laughs> listen, I, listen, I so live there. Listen, right? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, not to go off, but I know you into martial arts. Yeah. Did you ever get into the Brazilian art forms like the, the, the was it, Kappa? Uh, Capoeira? Yeah, Capoeira. So, well, Capoeira, I talk about this in my book. Like, Capoeira, uh, when I got into it, I was trying to learn how to dance. And when I went to some of these like opens here in New York City, Capoeira is more for fighting. Um, but I learned Brazilian Jiu Jitsu when I went to Rio. And um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is probably like the most rewarding martial art I had ever learned because, you know, it's something like you learn it and you don't have to spend several weeks to get a return on investment. You, you, you're in there for several months and you can know how to take someone's life very easily. So wow. all you have to do is apply yourself. It's, I, I think, and I mentioned this in the book, I recommended all quote unquote black men study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So how, how long did it take you to actually pick up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Oh, so like I was in Vigigal, which is a favela, and I didn't speak Portuguese at an academic level. Right. And I was fortunate that there was a guy in class who spoke some broken English. Mm -hmm. So the first few weeks I was in there, I didn't really get the understanding of how to roll and, and so forth. So like I was coming in with like a street wrestling attitude and they were just choking the shit out of me. I, I'm a, I passed out a few times, but it was good. But I have to say like, maybe like three months before I felt comfortable working through stuff. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the benefits of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Like 
because my entire life, like if I had a street fight and somebody's you know, grappling with me, I'm getting yeah. tense. Yeah. But Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu teaches you to work under pressure. Oh, and, wow. and not only, because when I was in Taiwan, I had somebody try to kill me. This guy was trying to choke me out in the middle of the street and I had used some traditional martial arts, but the bottom, the bottom line was he was trying to choke me. He was like, he had a bad uh, headlock. So traditional martial arts, they teach you to put your hand over your nose. So as long as you can still breathe, somebody can choke you all you want, but you can still breathe. Wow. So, but being in Brazil, he was doing this for like a minute or two and he was sweating and I'm up there, I'm relaxed. And I was like, man, as soon as I get in, I'm gonna knock this guy, man. I broke free, man. I lit that guy up so badly. That was like the yeah. worst I'd ever beat anyone. Damn, dude. His face was leaking, man. I wanna ask you what caused that whole situation, but. No, he, he that, that wasn't me. He was, he, he, you know, in Taiwan, I mentioned this in the book, he was high off a of beetle nut. In Taiwan, they, they, there's this stimulant what? called beetle nut, yeah. I know it sounds crazy, so if you Google that, like beetle nut? No, not like a beetle. It's called oh. beetle nut. It's a stimulant that's kind of like cocaine or marijuana, mm. and they use it to get high. And it's prevalent in like Asia, but especially in Taiwan. And so it's legal. And I bumped into, I was buying something in a store, and I, and I just bumped into this guy, and he, he reeked of alcohol and beetle nut. And he was mm. fucking, his eyes were all red. So I left the store and I'm walking down the street and I hear somebody yelling. I turn around, he just jumps, runs up to me and puts me in a headlock. Wow. Wow. So and let's I want to touch on some things in the book now. Yeah. Now um you spoke on uh being broken by a female. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. That was an important part of my life because um I had just gotten away from the Jehovah Witness religion. I had broken up like one of my best girlfriends. She was a Dominican young lady from Dominican Republic. And so I'm in this period where like, I'm not involved. I'm like, I'm spiritually unbalanced. And so I run into this brick wall. And I remember the first day I went out with her, I turned the corner, man. And like, I don't know if you remember those old Spider-Man comics, we had the the Spidey sense. (laughs) I knew something was wrong then, but Long story short, I get involved with this girl, you know, I'm fucking her brains out for seven months or whatever. And she just, she got rid of me. She tossed me, she got rid of me. She discarded me. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't understand what happened. You know, I was used to, I don't know, guess fucking women in submission or just having them be cool with me or whatever. But she's like, nah, nigga, get the fuck away from me. And I was like, what did I do? So, you know, I was, I was looking for answers. and, And I mentioned this in the book. The first man to come to me and help me was Tariq Nasheed. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys know who Tariq is. Oh, but we know who he oh, is. Man. That's my dog, man. There's this thing called the Red Pill Community, but Tariq had these things called the Mac Lessons. I got the book. I know it. And I remember when I started hearing these Mac Lessons, he was breaking down all these lies that women would tell. And I was like, whoa, that happened to me. That happened to me too. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And then he started talking about a word called simp. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. So <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I had been conditioned. And yep. so long story, now I was still kind of hurt. And another thing that happened was 
I had interviewed this brother in a martial arts article and his name is Floyd Webb. He's got a, a documentary coming out about uh, traditional martial arts as well. He's from Chicago. He's 65 right now, but he was, he was and is my mentor, but you know, he was breaking down the whole scenario. I talked to him on the phone. He broke down the whole situation and he was just telling me, you know, you know, this woman was trying to hurt me because her boyfriend hurt her or somebody had hurt her. And I get into a little bit more detail about what happened was, but like, he's like, you know, by the way, you need to change. You know, you told me you taught in Brazil, you know, my, my nephew's out in China, you know, and I, and he put me in contact with his nephew and I did, you know, sometimes people will, will bullshit you. Right. And he's like, you know, you should come out here, man. Cause like, you know, the school I'm at, they need somebody. You could work half the day, they'll pay you a salary. And then like four, four or five days later, man, they sent me a plane ticket. Wow. That's major. That's dope, and man. I, and man. then when I get to Beijing, they rescinded the offer. What? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that was set, that set the journey off there. Yeah. So, wow. so, so crazy. all the people out there that are not familiar with the red pill community, um, a lot of brothers uh, tend to go to the red pill community online. There's a very big presence online. And uh, one of our favorite uh, brothers from the red pill community, we did a show on Kevin Samuels. Yep. A, a, a big, uh, the big dog right now at the, the moment, we got Minister Jap, we got uh, brothers like uh, O'Shea Duke Jackson and um, mm -hmm. Mediocre Tutorial Reviews, salute to those brothers. And these are, these are the brothers that a lot of brothers go to when they are hurt in a relationship and need answers and clarity for them to continue on pursuing their purpose straight answers and, and let me tell you um no um who be mm -hmm. was the one who introduced me to Tariq Nasheed and mm -hmm. one of the first books I, I I actually bought from Tariq Nasheed was a book called the the Mac within mm -hmm. okay and that book really opened me up to a lot of things but the book that really really took me to another level was a book called how to become an alpha male mm, yes. um, yeah. i forget the brother's name but it's 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 a white guy but um i forget his name something alexander i read that book and i felt that that was probably the most thorough book for men looking to improve themselves right. and it, it was at that point of reading that book that i realized that i was an alpha male Mm, I realized yeah. there were things that I didn't even realize it. There was, I, I had a certain, at, at the age of 15, prior to 15, I had a very low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. But at the age of 15, something just turned on me, in me. And, and that book, Not to Cut You Off, is by Alexander John. Alexander John. That, mm -hmm. Any brother that's, and I don't, it doesn't matter what race, you could be a brother, you could be Asian, whatever, you Latin. Be white, anybody. Yeah. Anybody. That book, to me, is a book that everybody should read because he talks about not just about you know how to talk to women it's more or less the mindset the internal locus right. as opposed to the external locus sure. meaning things change from within you yes not from the outside indeed, okay indeed. changes are internal um, and and what you see externally is a byproduct of what's happening internally sure. Sure. So sure. it's dope that you know you were able to tap into that source and find some answers and then continue on with your with your purpose. Mm -hmm. 
very important. That's something we try to teach on on this platform is how for uh, is for how you know for our listeners to become a better version of themselves right. by using data and then not just using not just taking the data but applying it because knowledge is one thing but applying the knowledge is a totally different right. thing. It doesn't make any sense to sit on knowledge and not apply it. Indeed. Indeed. Might as well not have it. Absolutely, man. So anything else from this book you would like to share? Like, like what was the, like, I got a good question. What was the most difficult uh, chapter to write in this book? What was the most difficult chapter to write? I think uh, the chapters where I'm reflecting on, you know, making changes um, in, you know, my late twenties, you know, leaving corporate America and then leaving, <clears throat> graduating the Jehovah Witnesses that was a lot to me uh, and it was a difficult process because I had to, you know, lose, there were certain people that I had to, uh, you know, break connection with and, you know, you know people I've known my entire life, um, you know, I had to dissolve those relationships. Right. And that, because of that, that religion. And uh, that was kind of painful, but I think, um, reflecting on any negative periods, because you got to understand <clears throat> during the course of these years, I've been homeless twice. Mm. Wow. Um, you know, I've, I've, that's why like my friend was like, you know, your life is like a movie. It's not. And you mentioned the purpose of the overall purpose and arc was uh, in about 2006, I tried to write the sequel for The Last Dragon. Oh, wow. And right. And so what happened was I met with the writer and creator of that movie and he kind of set me on another journey. And that was the, another reason why I went to Asia, because I had been working on a, a fantasy fiction novel based on martial arts and so forth. And so I needed to go to China and experience Asian culture because there were things that I needed to experience firsthand. And so, like you mentioned, purpose, I definitely advocate that brothers travel with a purpose that's that's that should be the focal point of the traveling but in terms of like the, the any any negative or difficult it wasn't anything overall difficult i think just i think it's, it's been cathartic because like i wanted to just kind of revisit a lot of stuff and just it's, it's, an, it's an emotional release so it's not i guess anytime i'm like reflecting on my down periods but i even talk about getting therapy you know i got therapy online and a lot of people walk around with pain and shit and it's just like man speak to somebody it's yeah i think a lot of people are, <clears throat> are too prideful and I, I know a lot of situations where you know it, within the black community especially is like if you go to therapy you're crazy but it's like if you don't go to therapy you're crazy because you keep things bottled up and you're like and especially for a lot of black men it's like you know, well, I'm a man. I can, I can just brush it off. I can just go through it without any help or any. I'm like, it does. It, life doesn't work like that. Everybody right. needs help, and everybody needs somebody that you can speak to to kind of work through your problems. Okay, cool. I, I think at least eighty-five to ninety percent of our community needs therapy. Indeed. And it, it's it's really serious, and, and we we kind of downplay it. Uh, we look at that as. Uh, being crazy or something is wrong with us, but 
to say that our people have gone through the things that they've gone to, how could you not need therapy? Sure. Exactly. To me, it's just exactly. asking to, to yeah. think it's not, that you're going through police brutality, you're going through violence within your own community, you're going through uh, situations with single motherhood, um, not being raised around, primarily around both parents, or the breakdown of the family nucleus, and people really don't think they need therapy. And that to me is just asinine when you, when right, you really right. think about it. Right. Because when you see people posting about um, situations involving the mistreatment of our people, the indigenous people, Niji of this continent, uh, they just, they, they, they speak from a very emotional perspective. And there's nothing right. wrong with having emotions, but when a person's not in control of their emotions or energy in motion, right. Bad things tend to happen. Right. Not and true. I feel like it's it's just it's definitely a time for us to seriously consider as a collective that if we're gonna get things fixed around here, we have to start with ourselves yeah. internally, yeah. purge a lot of the things that are holding us up, the blockages, the things, the energy that is no longer serving us, go inward and we will see a a definite change for the better in the external realm. Absolutely. You know, I, I talk about in some book, one of the brothers who helped me get set up in where I was at in Rio, he was, he's a gay brother and he was having a hard time coming out mm. and he was going through all this torture and he was like, you know, he was, he was fucked up, man. You know, he was fucked up and like, I, for a while, like I, cause, you know, he lived in another part of the favela, and I was like, you know, I would go see him. He's crying and shit. I'm like, yo, what's going on with you, bro? And he just broke down and told me one day, you know, I'm an adult because I'm one of my cousins gay, so it didn't really like I wasn't tripping. It was like, bro, and I told him like, your parents love you, bro. Don't worry about that shit. But he went through a lot of stuff, and I, in a book, I talk about like you know, encouraging brothers, whatever the situation is, get help because. Years ago, when we had communities, you could possibly go to the, you know, the barber shop, and that old elder would be there. And even if you went to the bar, you might run into the reverend or somebody from the church who was that sagacious person who could give you insight. Right. But a lot of that stuff is gone, and so you don't smoking. You know how much weed you're smoking and. But it should be something that's continuous. It's not about being weak. It's about working through your problems. And there are yeah. people there who are trained for that. So that's the right. Yeah, definitely. And and you said something about weed. And, I, you know, just something just sparked in my head. And it, I feel like a lot of brothers are using the weed as the therapy. Right. Uh, that's the, uh, that's, yeah. even, I like Tariq, but he used to say shit like, you know, when you hurt, go get a drink. He said the old players would say, go get a drink. And I think that. You don't need to go get, look, I like alcohol. I like a little bit. I like having a beer. I like having some weed. Here and there, right. That's not the, that's not how you're going to work through that problem. Right. No, it's not. It's actually going to create a great more problem. problems. Yeah. And, and that's what I notice about our people is that we get so comfortable within those things, pastimes such as drinking, um, and we're just covering up and just muddying up what's already there. Okay, and we just kind of compound. Right. And that becomes a, and that becomes like a, a norm and that right. goes and that goes into your regular um, routine, man. And uh, yeah. I think mm -hmm. that we need healthier outlets and yeah. um, 
people that are willing to listen and, and to help you work through your problems. And I just think that now more so than ever, so many people just feel like they don't really have the time and there's not too many mentoring programs and things of that nature that we can um, actually go to. I want to add something because I'm glad you just said mentoring and, and I had a mentor. Um, that was the best thing that happened to me. Uh, my mentor, uh, LeBron Johnson, uh, he really helped me out. And I feel that that's somewhere we need to go with this is we need to get back into the mentoring aspect of things. And I, I look at homeboy as and the pyramids as almost somewhat of a de facto mentor. No, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you mentioned in the book, I do mention that I've been mentored and I've had people constantly mentored, but also I, I asked brothers that are out there because there's brothers out there who are sitting on top of all types of information. Right. And I want to just say, look, if they read the book, start helping people, man, because there's brothers out there who who have like, you know, and there's brothers out there, there's some brother out there who made his own goddamn submarine and not telling nobody. And, you know, he's, yeah, he, yeah. He, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I get it, out there doing amazing things within travel or just doing things within life. And it's sitting on information and they're not passing on that information and that, that mentoring. Right. Has the, to go, has to I, would, go. I would not to cut you off. I say the youth need to hear these things because the thing is that when you don't see somebody like you doing great things, you're going to always Here's things from other people. Oh, well, you don't have black people doing this. You don't have black people doing that. Why don't you just pick up a basketball? I'm like, look, picking up a basketball is not a bad thing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like you have a lot of athletes who are not just athletes. These guys are having business or have businesses outside of that. Right. Um, you know, but it's not one of those things where you know it's that um, prevalent where people who are in a higher position or a high status will come down to really mentor people and to put them in programs and things like that. And I think we yeah. need more of these things around. Definitely. And do you think, um, I, I, do you think that homeboy and pyramids could lead to something like maybe a non-for-profit or something or where, where something where guys get to meet up and do like a retreat? Do you think, do you want it to evolve into something beyond the book? I, like I said, I'm just continuing a conversation. Like you and uh, you and Cool B mentioned that you had a show about travel, the Freshman's yes. Guide to Travel. Freshman's right. Guide to Travel, yes. yes. Right, right. And I'm just, you know, I, years ago, there was a book, and African Americans published a book called The Green Book. And it was a travel book just within uh, safe places to go within the United States, to go to this restaurant, don't go to this city. It was that kind of information. Oh. And I made this book because you can't, we cannot travel in the wake of Caucasians and we cannot travel in the wake of women. You know, sister's gonna go to some city and everybody's gonna be nice to her because they wanna fuck her. And you'd be like, yeah, they love black people here. They, they don't love black people, they wanna fuck her. And so, <laughs> you know, if you follow her and you gonna get out, you'll be like, what the fuck? You know, so it's like, we need to have our own dialogue with each other. Right. And then, you know, with each other and it's not hindering anybody. It's like there's certain to hurt each other. So I think that there are brothers who are <clears throat> going to have there's, there's something called the black travel movement that a brother has started. 
And that thing is getting, that thing is getting huge, man. And so I'm not in competition with anybody. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be plenty of black men travel books and I'm all for it. Like I said, I'm not, this is just my part of my life and my story. And I, like I said, in the intro of the book, I wish somebody would have given me this information when I was 40, you know, cause I'm 44 now. I wish somebody would have given me this book four years ago. I wish somebody would have given me this book when I was 20. And like I said, there was a time man, when I was like lost and hurt and, you know, Tariq was one of the brothers who came to me, but there was a time when I wasn't getting any kind of spiritual or intellectual direction in life at all. Right. That's facts. In the age of Aquarius now, man, so yeah. information is a lot more readily available. You have meetups now. Um, you have so many things that brothers can now link up with like-minded individuals. And that's why I've always wanted to do a retreat mm-hmm. with it doesn't have to be big, but you know, at least eight to ten brothers. Oh, absolutely. Start off and 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 bring them into the loop because oh, sure, I know sure. there's a lot of traumas <clears throat> because as men, we don't get the benefit of the doubt. No, you never. <laughs> We're taught to just tough it out, you know, produce and yeah. keep your emotions in check. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes we need that outlet to go to to voice between amongst our pairs. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and a place of, you know, a place that we consider sacred, that we can we can share things that we would not share with the rest of the world. And I, I believe that is the missing aspect of this thing as far as improving our people um, experience on on this on this um, on this continent yeah. is to really get the men back in focus because the men are the leaders. And Indeed. when the leadership is compromised, it you crumbles <laughs> today. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, man, I, I want you to put out your social media. Your, your, you got a website. Where can people um expect this book? Where can they go to? Can they go to Amazon? Do you have a site? Just, just put that out yeah, there. Exactly. For me. Thank you very much, guys. And uh, so, it's homeboyinthepyramids.com. Um, they can look for the book on Amazon probably around June. I'm, I think I'm gonna hit published in June. I just finished the first draft a few weeks ago, okay. but I've been working, finished cleaning up a few things and I'm going to hire another graphic designer to clean up the uh, some of the fonts on the cover. But I had a, I, had, I already paid for the illustration that you see. Um, I think I sent you a picture of the, the book cover. Yes. Yes. I had, I had a, a brilliant artist named Ed Watson uh, do the illustration. So right. I just want to uh, work on uh, the font, maybe changing some of that. But other than that, it's going to be available for like a Kindle in is a late late May early June. Okay. Yeah, also, supporting that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let us know before the book, right before the book drops, so we can yeah. help promote your book on our platforms. Absolutely. And um, we'll definitely push that book, and and I definitely will be purchasing a copy. And I know Mercy's right. gonna purchase his own copy. Thank so you we're so gonna much. we're gonna definitely support you, man, because I've known All you. All right. I appreciate you guys. Just All right, father, man. And, you know, you. Thank you very much for sharing your story. I appreciate it. And your your story is might not sound like a big deal to you, but to somebody out there, your story is a major it is a big deal. Mm. And just talking to you and learning about the martial arts aspect, that, that just to me opened another chapter because now I'm wanting to look into this whole thing because I'm already looking at Dane Calloway, I'm looking at the Tariq Nasheeds, I'm looking at all this information that is suddenly, you know, coming available. Right. And starting to germinate, and I'm yeah, like, yeah. 
we we really had this shit on Smash, and somebody did a great job of trying to bury it. Yeah, there you go. That's what it is, man. Hey, That's man, it's it amazing with a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, yo, man, any last words, man? Yo, I just say thank you to Cool V. Um, thank you, Mercy. Thank you guys for having me on. And I just want to give a shout out. And uh, the book is dedicated to Bukhari Henderson. He's a brother who went to Greece and he was killed. Um, he got into he got he got into a fight and he was jumped by some men and they killed his brother. Yeah, I heard and about such that. a such a sad thing. His brother was just a you know nice good looking young brother, like twenty years old, twenty one, just finishing college, man. I so I, I you know still want brothers to travel and uh, like you know this is why we need to have these conversations so we we know what's going on in certain places and uh, we keep ourselves safe. Mm. Absolutely, man. Yo, man, I really enjoyed this one right here, man. This yeah, was brother, so, same there, same there, brother. It was just so educational, right. man. And and you you just showed me there's a lot more dimensions to a person, um, and, and you should never judge anyone just just looking at them just off a basic look. You, right. you really want to just chop it up with a person and see because everyone is a multi-dimensional being. Okay, absolutely. And and. Right. and Sometimes we only look at one aspect of a person and we never really get Indeed. to the other part. So Indeed, absolutely. Man, so man, thank you. Thank Clark, you guys. No matter Appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. Um, thank you. Definitely got to touch down with us again, man. And, I, I think so. I think I it'll really happen. I really want to go into the martial arts stuff because you really got me excited yeah. with that. That can be a whole, that's going to be a whole nother show. And I'm yeah. Probably, yeah, that's going to oh, be yeah. big this summer. It's going to be big, yeah. Because I'm, I'm oh, seeing yeah. a bunch of stuff that nobody's seen. Oh man. wow! Please bring it to bring it to City Radio Cast, man. <laughs> For sure, bring that over here. We want to be right. first dibs on that. All right, no problem, no problem. And um, you know, shout outs to all the listeners out there. Episode number seventeen is probably one of the best ones. Yeah. We've done. Thank you for coming on, sharing your knowledge, and go out and get that book, Homeboy and the Pyramids by Clark Ill Medical. You know, it sounds so much better when you say it. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool B. Mr. Mercy signing off Sin Radio Cast. Check us out till next time. Peace. Peace. peace, peace.